Greetings, listeners, if any, and welcome to DM Dad, the podcast about running D&D and other RPGs for kids. A great way to spend time with your family now that your friends are too old and have all moved away. Well, I'm back. Um, probably doesn't feel like I've been away because I was only away for the weekend, but uh, I spent this weekend in Stockholm, Sweden as a birthday treat um, that my wife got for me. I've always wanted to visit Scandinavia, um, so this was my, my first trip to Scandinavia. And as I am recording, it is my 40th birthday, the big four zero. Um, and uh, yesterday was Labor Day in the United States, but I don't live in the United States, so yesterday was Monday. And um, I've been uh, trying to catch up on some of the uh, Anchorite action that's been going on um, while I was... Uh, away uh eating kut and listening to abba and um i see that uh colin green spike pit like did uh, a tribute episode talking about um the the episode that i did um with um adventures in middle earth um so that's pretty amazing um, I got I've got a number of uh, Collins about that. Tim Shorts also did an episode where he talked about the shadow points because it was something that I talked about in in my episode about how I I wasn't quite sure I liked the shadow points. So he he phoned in to give his take on that. But then he also expanded on it in his own episode, and you should definitely check that out. Um, and I think with that, we'll maybe just get uh, right into the uh, the call-ins, because I've got a number of uh, call-ins for this ep- episode. Hey, Robert. Tim Shorts from Gothard's Manor. Really enjoying the episode. Calling in about halfway through it, you were talking about shadow points being a manipulation of, like, players' behavior. But I... Th- <sighs> Since I've been playing it for a year... It's been kind of a challenge. It's been interesting, though. I don't think it really dictates players' behavior. In our case, it dictated my character's behavior. Uh, one of my, my main guy is a scholar, so he has no real combat skills, but he's very manipulative, I guess, and very... He can get things done with his mouth more than his arm. But what was ended up happening, I was gathering shadow basically because I was lying and manipulating and I had to start changing my tactics because I was gathering too much shadow because it and I and I thought it added to the game I thought it it made it a lot more fun so I just wanted to throw that in there thanks Tim for calling in and also I really enjoyed your episode where you expanded on uh, how shadow works Um, I think when I do start running this um, for my kids I, I think I will I will keep the shadow points in there. I doubt, I doubt they're going to do much it, to accrue shadow points because that's kind of not how kids play. And uh, one of the things I think I'd like to talk about in the near future, I did a, an episode about um, how kids approach the RPG economy versus how older players do. And I think uh, I would like to talk about how kids approach morality and behavior 
as opposed to how older players do. You don't get these kids who who go around and mess with NPCs for no reason. Um, and you don't have to have alignment when you're playing with kids because they already want to play the good guy. Um, so so you can just put that whole can of worms away and just like the, the kids are going to want to do the right thing. Um, but I'll go ahead. I'll, I'll use it as written. Um, um, I mean, it, it definitely is keeping in, in theme, like in, in the, it's thematically related to Tolkien and his approach. Tolkien's work has a real strong sense of morality. Um, and one thing that, you know, I, I, I maybe didn't emphasize enough when I was talking about Adventures in Middle-Earth, but all the people who worked on this, all the people at Cubicle 7, did an incredible job making sure that this game really does evoke Tolkien's work. And it really feels... Uh, it really feels Tolkien-esque, and uh, I, you know, personally, I don't, I don't think your typical game of D and D is Tolkien-esque at all. Um, and and I think that they they recognize that and they made a game that feels like Tolkien. Um, and to that extent, I'm really excited to play this with my kids. It's just that I'm, I'm basically, I'm going to try to, um, I'm calling it Hobbit mode in my mind. I'm going to try to to run a more Hobbit-esque campaign not just because the kids want to play hobbit but hobbits but i i wanted to have more that fairy tale feeling of danger light that you get in the hobbit rather than the earth shaping earth shattering epic feel of lord of the rings maybe we'll work up to the epic feel eventually but i think to start with we're going to maybe do something a bit more light-hearted something something more like the hobbit so i'm going to call that hobbit mode unfortunately i won't be able to publish Hobbit mode because Adventures of Middle Earth is not an open game product, um, but I can I can probably at least talk about it. Hi Robert, Colin, Spike Pit, really enjoyed your Middle Earth episode. I thought it was great. Loads loads of content in there. Oh, I don't know where to start. Alignment. Your thoughts on alignment? I totally agree. I've binned it out of my five E game. Probably a lot of people will say that can't be done. But uh, I'm living proof that it can. <laughs> Whether anybody else thinks it's a good idea or not, uh, it works for us. Um, how about kids on bikes in the Shire? Could that work? So, perhaps uh, I'd be interested to hear what you think on that one. What else did I have to say? Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Good luck with your getting your dungeon together. Your one-page dungeon. It sounds like a really interesting project. And um, I think you're a brave man taking on that other thing. And I, I'd be nervous running a game with strangers. So, well done. So, that was Colin Green at Spike Pit. Thanks again for calling in. Thanks, as always. And thanks also for um, all of your uh, kind words in the uh, the episode you where you talked about Adventures in Middle-Earth and stuff. Um that's that's it's really means a lot um yeah alignment um i think i think matt colville um he did an episode about the nine point alignment system which is like the most familiar one that we um we have where we have chaotic evil and lawful good and all the things in between um and he said you know he said it's kind of like the bane of D. &D. It, it creates so many problems on the other hand he said you, you 
he probably he can't imagine it ever not being there because it's part of the flavor of D&D. But I tell you one thing, if you've ever tried to explain the nine point alignment system to anybody, but especially kids, you really it's like as soon as you start talking about it, you wish that you hadn't said anything. Um, and I, I think what basically they all ended up selecting neutral good because they didn't want to, they didn't want to be the kind of good person who followed the rules no matter what they wanted to have, have a kind of pragmatic goodness where like they, they mostly followed the rules unless there was a really good reason to break them as in it was going to help somebody in the long run or something. They didn't want to have their hands tied the way that Superman would probably have to follow the rules no matter what and you know how lawful good how lawful is a lawful good person like when does it bleed into lawful neutral and um you know if you're true neutral is it because you think there needs to be a balance or is it because you just can't be bothered interacting with it you know all of these things the the more you examine alignment the less it makes any sense and the less it really works and I think, uh, personally, I think if you could just ditch it and just say, look, you're all good guys. We're not running an evil campaign. You're all good guys. You're all basically going to do good stuff. Whatever your personal relationship to goodness or your personal definition of goodness, that's your that's your business. That's your role-playing prerogative, you know? So that's one of the things that I found really refreshing about Adventures of Middle-Earth is you're like, nope, no alignment, you know? I mean effectively you're all on the same side you you may have a different approach to to being on that side but yeah i it, it felt like a weight had been lifted when i read that it's like oh that's what a great idea let's just not have alignment as for uh kids and kids on bikes in the shire i've been thinking about that more and more um you know you know like when you uh when you roll things on random tables and you think this random table, this will give me the answer I need. And then you get something really weird and you're like, what am I supposed to do with that? But you just take a deep breath and go with it. And then you end up getting someplace amazing. That's kind of how I feel about the suggestion of uh, kids on bikes in the Shire. It's like, boy, that's strange. Actually, this could be really good. Like I started thinking, yeah, maybe the Shire is a weirder place than most hobbits believe or want to believe and then i thought yeah actually grown-up hobbits are exactly the kind of people who would turn a blind eye to anything that they didn't feel like dealing with and and it might be up to some precocious hobbit tweens which if you if you remember from Tolkien, hobbit tweens are are in their 20s which is kind of like a second teenage years it's not the uh the tweens that we have today in the 21st century which are children who wish they were teenagers effectively but you know it's like yeah i I could really see a lot of potential for having some some weird and wonderful adventures in the shire where where it's just a little group of rambunctious younger hobbits who are like this stuff is going on and they're and the older hobbits are like nonsense yeah i I don't know there's a lot of potential with that I, i think it's got legs um to really make it like kids on bikes, I think I would probably use kids on bikes to hack the one ring because the one ring is ultimately a simpler system. Um, 
than than uh, Adventures in Middle Earth. Adventures in Middle Earth does end up porting some of the baggage of Fifth Edition along with it. It has you know, like in place of feats, it has virtues, but they work very similarly to feats. And uh, I've actually just scrapped feats from my Five E game. <laughs> I'm just like, no, we're not dealing with this. You know, feats are one of the things that makes Pathfinder such a headache. Um, and there are far fewer feats in 5e, but, you know, and remember in fifth edition feats are meant to be optional. Like you don't have to use them. And the default option is that you're not using them. It's something that you can add in if you want to. And I've just decided, no, we're not going to mess with that actually. Um, but yeah, I will, I will be thinking about, about, uh, kids on bikes in the shire what would hobbits ride i don't think hobbits seem like they wouldn't ride bikes because they they are a bit on the timid side about physical challenges you know but what would a hobbit ride well ponies i suppose i don't know i'll think about i'll think about that anyways thanks uh thanks for that colin hey robert frank t here just catching up on some osr anchorite casts and uh, I was listening to your racist class podcast, and I have to agree, I like the racist class feature in BX and Beckme, and I think I also like the separation of race and class from AD&D and subsequent editions, but I think there's a difference there. I think you hinted on it that having races class implies a specific setting. And I think there's a charm to that. Whereas with the other editions, you have to kind of customize a little bit as a DM to keep a setting. All right. Uh, thanks for that, Frank. Um, I think that's a really good point. Um, you know, regarding sort of, uh, AD and D especially, um, I think, uh, you know, since, uh, since third edition, I think we've all got used to the idea that any race and class can be used in any combination. Um, but AD and D didn't really do that. There were still restrictions and, I think we can we can probably infer that um, Gary Gygax, for instance, never intended you to just be able to go crazy with the combinations, and that you're always supposed to kind of tweak it to your 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 setting style. And I think you know, especially considering what say like Tim Shorts have been talking about, how even better than races class is having a set of specific class and background or cultural options for the different demi-humans to kind of keep them unique and you know interesting like that's that's probably the the ideal thing is for you as the as the game master to uh you know come up with how these things work in your setting and and then you know make sure that the uh race and class options reflect that and imply that and give that sense of otherness that you're going for. Because if you leave it as a default, any race and any class can be used in any combination, then you're basically saying that an elf is a human with dark vision. And that's not, that's, it's really just a buff, you know? So, uh, that's good stuff. So moving on, um, yeah, like I mentioned, uh, 
it's my birthday, so uh, I've hit the big four zero, and um, I got a pretty cool birthday present from my brother. Um, so he asked me what I want, and um, I kind of already knew <laughs> what I w- what I wanted to ask for. If anybody said, "Hey, what do you want for your birthday?" So basically, um, I think very recently, um, Red Dice Diaries did a podcast about basically how much free or very, very cheap OSR material there is. And I think we, we, all, we all can agree with that. There's, there's so much great stuff out there that you can have for nothing or for very, very little um, you know, pay what you want or a very small price or, you know, whatever. Um, and then there's some stuff that isn't free. And I mean, I, I have absolutely no problem with people wanting to charge for their work. If you put a lot of work into your game or into your adventure or into your material and content, you have every right to kind of attach a price to that and, and, and ask for that price. Um, but of course, the higher the price is, the more your your prospective buyers have to kind of pause before they they shell it out. Um, so there are, there are, for instance, you can get PDFs of so many re- retro clones either for free or for very very cheap. You can get you know print on demand physical copies of them for for so little, and there, then there are some that cost a little bit more than that. And one of them that's above my threshold of where I would just automatically buy that for myself, where I'd have to say, well, I'm going to wait and save up for that or something like that, is Blue Home Journeyman. I've always wanted to get this because, I mean, wow, what what an amazing product this is. Uh, it's a retro clone of Holmes Basic, you know. Swords and Wizardry is a retro clone of original Dungeons & Dragons. You know, Labyrinth Lord is a retro clone of BX, and I think pretty much so is Lamentations of the Flame Princess. Um, there's a retro clone of Beck Me, I forget which is called. Is it Dark Dungeons, I think? There's more than one retro clone of AD&D. Um, there's even a retro clone of 2nd edition AD&D as opposed to 1st edition AD&D. But this Holmes Basic, the kind of forgotten middle child of D&D history. Somebody, well, Michael Thomas has made this a game playable from one levels 1 to 20 because Holmes Basic only has rules <laughs> for up to 3 because they uh <laughs> Gary Gygax wanted you to stop playing basic D&D and start playing AD&D after third level. Um and by the time they realized that pe- that there were a number of people who were going to keep with basic or actually more accurately, they had to con- continue supporting the basic Dungeons and Dragons line in order to uh, avoid a legal dispute with Dave Arneson. Um, they revised the original basic, and that became the Moldvay basic that that you know, and the famous red box that we all know and love. But Michael Thomas has created this uh, this retro clone of Holmes basic that you can now play as a complete game up to level twenty. Although in old school games, level 10 is really probably as high as you ever want to go. And uh, ever since I've heard about this, I've, I've wanted to get a copy of it. But it, 
there's no well the prentice rules the one to the levels one to three have, are are free as a pdf but the complete game has never been free so it's been on my kind of wait and see list or save up for it or maybe ask for it for my birthday and my brother got this for my birthday so um i love i love the cover art on this um it it does a good job of evoking the cover of home's basic without actually imitating it i feel like the dragon's facial expression is pretty much the same um as the as the dragon in the original home's basic but we've got a little a party opening a chest seems to be a female rogue crouching down there there's gold all over the the all over the ground anyway as if as if there's already loot outside the chest and there's a nice warm glowing light coming from the chest there's a female fighter at least possibly a paladin um a dwarf fighter as well, and a magic user that we know is a magic user because um, he's wearing robes and a pointy hat. Um, and then behind them, from the shadows, the dragon is creeping up behind them with that classic Holmes basic uh, facial expression. And yet, I don't know, is, he, is, is the dragon going to attack the party? Or is the dragon going to join the party? Is he like, hey, you guys found some treasure. Can I hook up with you guys? So anyways, what am I, what am I going to do with Holmes basic? Um, cause I'm already running swords and wizardry for my kids. Well, one of the things that I, that I find really intriguing about Holmes basic and that also plays into the kind of Holmes style because Holmes, uh, was also interested in sci-fi as well as fantasy is, uh, the, the playable races. Now, Traditionally, I go for a more low fantasy game, and I don't have a lot of playable races. Um, I stick to the core ones, basically. Humans, dwarves, elves, and halflings. And right here, well, they, they call race species in the game. Um, there's a picture of a human, a dwarf, and this bug creature, which I always forget the name of it, but it's in the monster section. And it basically, the game basically says, take anything from the monster section and turn it into a playable race if you want to. Um, which, again, you know, in the in the original game, in, in uh, original Dungeons and Dragons, Gary Gygax said, "Yeah, if you want to play a dragon, let your if your characters want to play a dragon, let them play a dragon. Just make sure it starts off relatively weak. It's called a drenoy. the 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 humanoid insect is called a drenoy." And uh, because that's shown in the in the species, like under the species paragraph, it's clearly foregrounding. Like you can go crazy with this, play anything you want. You know, my daughter wants to um, write an adventure where all the characters are meant to play different types of ooze, like gelatinous cube and ochre jelly and black pudding. She wants them basically to be character classes, and you know, wow. What a weird idea. Um, but but what I want to do with, with uh, Blue Home Journeyman is that there's a certain trope in D&D that I've never experimented with. And that's the idea that D&D is not taking place in a fantastical past, you know, like a, a fantastical version of the Middle Ages or the ancient world. Instead, 
it's taking place in a post-apocalyptic world where we've blasted ourselves back to a medieval level of technology, but out there in ruins are the leftovers of a more technologically advanced culture. In fact, even more technologically advanced than our present. But since we no longer know what any of that stuff is or how to use it, it's basically magic. And when you find, in the in, in this way of looking at, at it, when you find a wand of magic missiles, it's actually like a ray gun or a laser blaster or something. But you don't know that. So you just think of it as a wand that can cast magic missile. And the reason it only has a certain number of charges is because it's really old. And whatever its power source is, whatever it's using for batteries, are almost drained. And once they're gone, you don't have the the capacity to recharge it. So it'll become useless. And I've never ever... I've never designed a, a world, a game world like that. And I, I would like to. I would basically like to I'm either completely rip off the dying earth or do something really heavily influenced by the dying earth. But this idea that we're actually playing very far into the future. The, the sun hasn't got a lot of time left. Even if it's something like 10,000 years that's not a lot considering the age of the sun and how much time the sun really does have left to burn. And, you know, there are no more great civilizations. We're just living on the ruins of great civilizations and we don't understand their technology. So it's magic. And I would really like to have some fun with that. And in that kind of world, I would break my usual techno or my usual tendency of, of keeping it low fantasy and saying, well, by then there could be all kinds of weird, you know, so the, you, we could have these humanoid insects. Did they come from another planet? Did they just evolve over a long enough timeline? Who knows, you know, but we can go crazy. If we can have the, you know, as, as uh, Chuck Thorne put it in one of his podcast episodes, uh, the cantina scene from Star Wars, you know, we'll just, we'll no longer assume that we're the only sentient species on this planet. And, you know, one of the things like that, that happens in, in the, the Jack Vance books in The Dying Earth is people, they are kind of aware that there's leftover technology that might still work. And and they will go and seek it out. I think uh, one of the last stories in the first book is actually about that. It's about going to a far-flung part of the known world that hasn't been visited by the, by the people in the main continent for a long time because there's something there. They don't know quite what it is, but it's, whatever it is is very powerful and they, they want to kind of get it and bring it back. So there's a lot of adventuring opportunities in this kind of world. And I would, uh, I would really like to, to run this kind of game and see how it goes, you know, this, this kind of combination of, of post-apocalyptic sci-fi and fantasy um, and, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not yet decided whether this will be something that the player characters are meant to know about. Do they know that they're living at the end of the earth, you know, the, the end of the earth's timeline? And do they know that there's a lot of leftover good stuff from previous civilizations? Or do they think that their current state of technology is the farthest anybody's ever developed 
have they completely lost all previous history? Because you got to think, you know, if if we lose electricity, we store all of our records digitally now. If we if if somehow we lose the ability to uh, to use electricity, then there's going to be hundreds of years of records that are just going to disappear, and nobody will have any capacity to uh, to learn anything that we've written down. Basically, since we started uploading all of our records to computers, so especially if at the same time something happened that destroyed all the libraries, you know, or most of them, you know, there there would be big big gaps in history. So um, I'd be very excited to play this. Um, I'll probably I'll be flipping through it more thoroughly um, and talking about it. But there's some really good reviews of this. Uh, this rule set already. Um, Captain Courageous, um, one of my favorite YouTubers, uh, he's the first, his review of it is actually when I first heard of it. Um, so he did a really good review of it and he's a big fan. And uh, of course, Old Man Grognard, Glenn Halstrom did a great review of it as well. So you can, uh, if you're, if you're interested in it and you don't know much about it yet, you can look those two, those two uh, reviews up and there's probably many, many more. I wouldn't be surprised if Questing Beast has reviewed it too. Um, but anyways, thank you very much to my brother Stephen uh, for getting me this. Um, the other the other retro clone that I'm not going to buy for myself, at least not anytime soon, is uh, Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea 2nd Edition. As far as I know, that's only available in hardcover. And it is a beautiful looking hardcover, um, but it's seventy dollars, <laughs> and it's like that's like it's more than the player's handbook for fifth edition. And I mean, granted, it's less than all three of the uh, core rule books for fifth edition together, but that's a lot of money. And I'm sure it's worth it because it looks like a beautifully produced book. It look the illustrations that they show, like you can see a little YouTube preview of it, you know. They look, uh, they look amazing. So I'm sure it's worth it, but I, I don't, ha- I don't have seventy dollars to just spend on a random book. Especially, I, I may never get to play that game because it is an AD and D clone, and I haven't gone down the AD and D path with my kids yet. I'm worried it might still. I've heard, it, I've heard it actually is pretty simplified as far as AD and D goes, but I'm worried it might still be a bit too crunchy to play with my kids. However. That one does come with a default post-apocalyptic setting, just like I was describing. So one of the reasons I would like to get that in the near future is that I may actually just be able to steal that setting, um, since it seems to kind of already do the the sort of dying earth style setting that I'm that I was talking about. So speaking of uh having a, a retro clone and physical copy um that is something that i've been doing recently um for for a long time i i limited my osr purchasing to pdfs um and i have recently kind of broken the barrier and gone into things that that where i'm getting them in physical copies for instance i have i have swords and wizardry white box as a, as a soft cover i also have the seattle hill white box fantastic medieval adventure game in soft cover as well it's pretty much identical 
to uh, to Swords of Wizardry White Box, although it has uh, the Thief class and a few other little tweaks. Um, it has an amazing cover, those um, the the kind of edgy black and white cover. I really like that. Um, and I've got basic fantasy RPG, and I've got like Matt Finch's uh, OE Reloaded uh, monster book in soft cover and a few other things. And now, um, obviously as my birthday present, blue home journeyman. And, uh, it, it was funny because recently my wife made a joke about how, how I buy basically everything. Um, she didn't name wizards of the coast by name. Cause I don't think she's aware of the name of the publisher of dungeons and dragons, but she was you know joking that I buy all, all their books. And it was interesting because it got me thinking about how I'm actually not buying as much official stuff from Wizards of the Coast anymore. Um, there's some stuff that I never bought. For instance, I, I I don't have any of their hardcover adventures from before uh, Curse of Strahd. Uh, Curse of Strahd is the first one of the fifth edition hardcover books that Chris Perkins was the lead designer for. And I really like Chris Perkins as a designer. I'm I'm slowly collecting all of his published adventures from back in you know he used to submit to Dragon Magazine a lot. I've got his first one ever, which he put, he submitted under the name of Chris Zaratustra. It was actually a tournament uh, adventure, so it has like points and stuff in the back. But I mean, you could run it as just a normal adventure. Um, I just, I love, I love his, his design style. Um, just really devious and ruthless stuff, really challenging, entertaining, unique ideas. I don't like the fifth edition hardcover books from before he became the lead designer for their adventure line. And the kind of, I think what they, what they call him is like, like, I don't know, storyline manager or something. It's basically kind of up to him to decide what, what their product stream is going to look like in in terms of its adventures and the storyline that they're going to follow for for a given period. So I've got Curse of Straw, I've got Storm King's Thunder, I've got Tomb of Annihilation. But I don't have and I'm not interested in getting Princes of the Apocalypse, um The Rage of Demons. I I especially don't want the uh, Tyranny of Dragons books. I played through them as a player, um, and I gotta say they are underwhelming. Um, if somebody pitched to me is like, "We're gonna do a campaign about the dragon cult wanting to raise Tiamat into the material plane," I'd be like, "That sounds like a great idea for a campaign." And when you see what they did with that, it's like that's that's the best you can do for that golden idea. That's the best you can do, really. Um, just, I'm sure Chris Perkins would have done a much better job, but I don't think that was his role in the company at the time. I certainly don't want the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide. I'm not the biggest fan of Splat books anyway, but more to the point, I am not a fan of the Forgotten Realms, and I am especially not a fan of the Sword Coast. And even though the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide isn't just information about the Sword Coast, it's also, you know, player options and stuff it's tainted by the fact that it's called sword coast that I just, I wouldn't touch it with a 10 foot pole. 
Um, and, and the main, for me, the, the real failing of all the fifth edition adventures is that they all link themselves not only to the Forgotten Realms, but to the same bit of the Forgotten Realms, the Sword Coast. It always has to start in the Sword Coast. Even Curse of Strahd, if you play the intro as written, you're in Daggerford, because of course you are. You know, Barovia is its own setting, but it's like, no, no, no. You start in Daggerford, and then you wander into some mist and magically go someplace else. It's like, you know, you didn't have to do that. There's no reason to start the people in this adventure on the Sword Coast. They could have been anywhere. But for some reason, it's it's always the Sword Coast. And the one thing I can say in defense of the Forgotten Realms is that it's huge. In terms of how big it is and how detailed all the bits of it is, it's probably bigger than Middle-Earth. It's not as good as Middle-Earth, but it is probably bigger. And if you want to run a campaign in Kalimshan, there's enough information out there for you to run an entire campaign in just in Kalimshan or Cormir or Icewind Dale. But no, it's always the same bit that Wizards of the Coast focus on. And when uh, it says Tomb of Annihilation works the same way, they're finally going to Chult, a different part of the Forgotten Realms. In fact, a completely different type of environment. But you still start in the Sword Coast and you teleport there. It's like, great. That's because, you know, first of all, yeah, we need to start in the same bit. You could have actually just started in Chult and played Chultons, but nah. We're going to start in the Sword Coast, and it, we're going to go to a place really far away, but let's not make it hard. You know, we'll just teleport you there. That'll be fine. You know, what a missed opportunity. Um, but when they, were, when they were getting ready for the stream of many eyes, and they were, you know, putting all this hype on about it, and I was just like, whatever they're going to announce, I'm sure it's going to take place in the Sword Coast. And in fact... When you hear Stream of Many Eyes, you think Beholder, and you know they had already come out with the Xanathar's Guide to Everything, which is a pretty good book, actually. But Xanathar lives in Waterdeep, and it's like, I know this is going to have something to do with Waterdeep. And, you know, that's exactly what we got. Dragon Heist. And I was just like, you know what? I'm out. Because of all the parts of the Forgotten Realms, Sword Coast is my least favorite part, and of all the parts of the Sword Coast, Waterdeep is my least favorite part. It, it is exactly the opposite of my taste in fantasy cities. Um, in fact, we had to go there when I was playing through uh, Tyranny of Dragons. And, you know, we went into a shop and bought magic items with our gold, and it's like, yeah, because of course we can. Because why, ha- why adventure for magic items when you can just buy them and stuff? It just all the I, I hated all the bits that took place in Waterdeep. Why would I want to spend an entire adventure from levels one through five there? So it's like, pff, I'm not getting that. Like I have no intention of buying, uh, dragon dragon heist. There's, there's maybe a very small chance that if I've never run a city adventure and if it's really, really cool and transportable to another city, then there's an outside chance I might buy it. But I'll have to wait and see some reviews of it. I have a feeling, though, that it is going to be really strongly linked to Waterdeep and that you're not going to be able to play it in a different city. That it, you would, Your different city would have to be identical 
pretty much to Waterdeep. And it's not just the city of Waterdeep, it's the style of city of Waterdeep that I don't like. So I have no I have no intention of running this adventure. Um I probably will actually get the one about Undermountain because I'm a sucker for mega dungeons. And even if I don't run Undermountain, I'm sure there's probably going to be a lot of really great ideas to steal for another mega dungeon. I mean, I have the Doom Vault one. What is it? Dead and Fey. You know, that's a mega dungeon. I may never run that, but it's worth reading. Obviously, like the mega dungeon I'm, I'm, I'm intending to run is a uh, Rapanathic, but I just, I, I love the whole concept of mega dungeons. I love reading all the crazy stuff that's in them. And I love getting ideas for homemade mega dungeons out of them. So I probably will get that. But then they announced this Ravnica thing, you know, releasing a, a magic, the gathering setting as an official, as an official hardcover book. And it's like, you know what? I'm not that into magic. I'm not going to set a game in a Magic the Gathering universe. And even when they were describing how it is, it's like, that doesn't sound like the kind of setting I would want to work with. So I'm not going to buy that. So it looks like on the horizon, there's a bunch of Wizards of the Coast products that I'm just not remotely interested in purchasing. At the same time, I have started purchasing physical copies of OSR products. And it just feels to me like I'm I'm kind of cutting the ties with official fifth edition and kind of moving more into just wanting to run old school things. Um especially as you know, we I I have Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes as well as Xanathar's Guide and Volo's Guide. But you know what what's starting to happen now is that they are they are expanding fifth edition with with Splat, you know. It's there's more options and more mechanics, more numbers and more page flipping. And I'm trying to get away from that. That's the stream of OSR that I've kind of adopted or, or got into is the rules light stream. Um, it's not the only stream of OSR, but it's the, it's the one that I like. I don't have a lot of time and I run for kids. So less is more in terms of the bulk and baggage of mechanics. You know, I don't want to, I don't want a, a character sheet with loads of numbers and loads of entries. I mean, have you seen like, you know, a Pathfinder character sheet? It looks like a tax return form, you know, and, and it's about as long. I don't, I don't want to voice that on my players. And, uh, you know, fifth edition will probably never be that crunchy. And it's certainly developing its crunch or expanding its crunch at a much slower rate. Because fifth edition D&D has never had the uh, rapid publishing program that Paizo usually has. But it is creeping there. And, you know, there's no new edition on the horizon. There's no there's no expectation that there's going to be a sixth edition soon. So at some point, fifth edition will start to collapse under its own weight. And I feel like I'm kind of getting ready to jump ship before that happens. Because, you know, some people talk about, you know, what's the point of getting into OSR or, you know, when you play with your kids, you need to make sure that they play the current edition or they won't be able to play with their friends. It's fine for playing at home if you want to play the old school things, you know. But, you know, one of the points for me of playing an OSR 
uh, an OSR rule set at home or with anyone really is just that it's quicker and easier and it, it, it leaves more time for playing the game and less time for looking up obscure rules and wondering how to interpret them. You know, more time spent at the table actually playing the game. And for some people, like there, there, I'm sure there are people who really love that crunch and interpreting those rules, you know, gets their, gets their wheels turning in their head. And that's, that's something that an experience they're looking for, you know, um, in which case they need a system that's really crunchy like Pathfinder. But for me, the, the fun part of playing the game is not rolling up a character and it's not looking up rules or pondering the wording of certain rules so that I can understand how to apply them. The, for me, playing the game is when we're all at the table interacting with each other and doing something, you know, doing something in the game. Um, and so I'm always going to kind of gravitate towards a more streamlined, a more rules light, a more rulings, not rules system. And that's why I'm such a big fan of swords and wizardry, especially white box. And why I like some of the, the kind of even lighter versions like untold adventures or, you know, even I don't, I don't use the black hack wholesale, but there's a lot of, there is a lot of stuff in the black hack that can really save you doing a lot of maths, you know? Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm always going to kind of gravitate towards that. So I wonder if you know, time will tell, but I wonder if we're kind of seeing the end of, of, uh, of me buying official products from wizards of the coast and just focusing almost exclusively on OSR products and retro clones and things like that. Well, that was a big, long ramble, much longer than I intended. Um, so before I sign off for today, just um, I want to do a few plugs. Um, Larry Hamilton of uh, Follow Me and Die has just released his first product on uh, one bookshelf, so drive through RPG, RPG Now, etc., called Locks, Vaults, and Hiding Places. Um, Tim Shorts has also uh, given him a shout-out about this. Um, I bought it. I have it. <clears throat> I would have bought this even if I weren't following Larry's podcast. Because what this is, this is a bunch of random tables designed for you to create unique and individual locks, faults, and hiding places. I love random tables anyway. Um, one of my favorite things to do is roll some stuff up, you know, and then figure out how I'm going to work that result into the game because I like to be surprised. And I also feel that if I'm surprised and the players are definitely going to be surprised. But another thing about this product that appeals to me in particular is I'm moving away from rolling for rolling to accomplish things as my, as my game mastering style. I'm moving away from roll to see if you pick this lock you know, and more like describing the lock and then letting the player describe how they interact with it and then ruling the success or failure based on that interaction. But to do that, you need details. This, that, that approach doesn't work unless you have details. And I don't know a lot about locks, you know. Um, 
So uh, something like this, if there's going to be a locked door or a locked chest or a locked vault or something in an adventure I'm running where I, you know, I want to run the the encounter that way. It's a big thing. The party's going to have to interact with this obstacle and I'm going to want to run it that way where I describe it to them, give them details to work with, and then they tell me how they interact with those details. I need to have those details. And, you know... How many times am I going to come up with a unique idea for a lock or a vault or something? So this is the kind of thing that I'm really interested in having that is going to help me run my game the way I want to run my game. Because, yeah, if you want to get away from just, well, roll your dice and we'll see if you're successful into something that actually challenges the player to think, that that whole approach only works with details. So you need to have those details. And I don't know everything about everything, you know. There are some things I can make up on my on my own, but there's some things where I really need a little bit of help. And this is a great tool for that. And I mean, even if you don't run your game that way, I think tools like this can really up your game, you know, just just give you a little bit more just put a little bit more oomph into your world. Some more uh, some more details that will just make it stand out in your players' minds, you know. Um, so this is a this is a great tool. Um, I highly recommend it. I I got it. It's pay what you want. I uh, I paid for it, and I would recommend that you do as well. And I um, based on this, I'm looking forward to seeing more uh more stuff from Follow Me and Die. So I am following. Uh, I'm following him as a producer through rpg now or drive through rpg is actually the one that i i go to so i'll be notified presumably of any new products that he comes out with but yeah this is a great first offering and i highly recommend it um questing beast has a new game out called nave it's the follow-up to maze rats um but it's um compatible with uh with osr type games so it uses stats and things like that are are more um uh more compatible with uh osr games so for instance you know i I think to be honest there's so much stuff from maze rats that you could use in any game but the core mechanic is 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 unique so uh so it's not you know you can't like Mm -hmm. just transplant it into swords and wizardry or or back so I have Nave. I purchased it. Um, I haven't read it yet. Um, I have high hopes for it because Maze Rats is a great game. Uh, I just started my kids on Maze Rats, um, and I'm making heavy, heavy use of the random tables that are in that game to do basically just a bunch of bespoke monsters, bespoke spells, just stuff that you would never have in any other game because they're all generated by rolling on those tables. Um, but anyways, yeah, definitely check Knave out if you like Questing Beast and if you like Maze Rats. And lastly, there is a Kickstarter. I know like, um, well, actually, uh, Eric Tankor has already talked about this one. I know he's the Kickstarter guy, but it's a uh, Philip Reed's Outdoor Encounter Cards. So this is, this is off off the the back of his successfully funded dungeon cards um which i backed um just at the pdf level because it only ships 
within the US and I don't live within the US. Otherwise, I would totally have backed it for the print because it's super cheap and the shipping's already included. But yeah, so he's got these outdoor encounter cards as well. So they, they presumably work in a very similar way. You draw these random cards and you get a cool little thing to happen while your party is exploring some wilderness. Um, so I back this. It's It's got a very short... It's basically this, go, this goes until Friday. Um, I don't know why he put such a short run on this, um, but it only goes till Friday, and it is still just over half, or just under half. It's not. It's not funded yet, and there's 56 hours left, and. I've already seen some drafts of the dungeon encounter cards. Um, the The official final PDFs haven't dropped yet, but the the drafts of them are great, and I really want these two. <laughs> so, if nobody backs this, then nobody gets anything. Um, and it's not you can you can back this for four dollars. Um, and I really want these cards, and I can't have them if you guys don't give this guy $4. So, you know, you've got 56 hours to give this guy $4 so that I, you know, so that we can all have these amazing art, like the artwork looks amazing. And, you know, this will make running a fun and exciting hex crawl or overland travel section so much easier. Just pull one of these things out of the deck and look what happens guys, you know, and then, then your journey is memorable without you having to have poured through a bunch of books and stuff like that for, uh, for, you know, some other, some bespoke, uh, encounter. So, I mean, like I said, you know, the official PDFs haven't dropped of the dungeon encounter cards yet. Um, but he's a, he's a month ahead of schedule for the, for the print ones going to ship. He's, um, he's nearly got the final PDFs. It's basically just a, la- a last um, tweak of, of you know a few typos and stuff like that. So he's well ahead of schedule. So you know these things are gonna they're gonna happen. There's no danger of it not happening. And you know it's four dollars. So you know even even if he uh, even if you never got the cards, you know four dollars. So and you won't even be charged if it doesn't get funded. But I would really like to have these. So I think you know, you should consider dropping him, dropping him a little bit of cash. And this will be a really fun thing to add to your game. So yeah. Um, until next time, um, speaking of next time, I want to actually talk about um, player expectations when you run for kids. Um, I talked about ec- the, the economy and I want to talk about, um, morality and things like that when you have children as your players it was kind of inspired by a lot of the things that people were talking about with alignment and stuff um and one of the reasons you might not need to use alignment if you're running a game for kids is because they're going to default to good so but i just like to kind of talk about that about you know there, there's some there's some really refreshing things about running an rpg for kids um if you have if you've had a lot of problem players um i think probably you know i'm thinking about the kind of players in like um 
The Gamer's Dorkness Rising, or NPCs, this novel um, by Drew somebody. Um, they kind of satirize bad RPG groups where the players just want to destroy things and have no consequences. You, you don't get that when you play with kids. Um, so I'd like to do kind of an episode about that. And another thing that's been making the rounds is solo games. And I have a lot of experience running solo games. I ran a solo game for my daughter for a long time. And I've run solo games for grown-ups as well. And I am preparing to... Um, I'm starting to plan a solo game to try to get my wife into gaming. Um, and I've done, I've done running solo games a few different ways and I just think it would be, I'd like to give my take on what the best way of, of running a, a game for one person that is the most successful with the least work for the DM and the most fun for the player. So hopefully I'll actually get those, episodes done because I don't have the best track record of actually recording the episodes that I want to record. But until then, play well and let the dice fall where they may. Was that how it goes? Was it let the dice roll where they may? I think it's let the dice fall where they may. Yeah, do that.